And we are in our series, uh, getting near the end of it, our series entitled Fit Church, um, exploring nine marks of a healthy church body. What does it mean to be a healthy church? And for the last several weeks, I think we're, we're in Mark 8 right now, so this would be the seven weeks previous to this one, we were going through marks. These are the essentials of being a, a, a church body, what it means to be a part of a body of Christ. And today we're talking about discipleship. And uh, for many of us, we have vague notions of what that means. But it it means uh, growing and being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ to you? If I were to ask you to stand up here and explain to me what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what would you say? I mean, what thoughts come into your mind? I mean, for many of us, and and I I see many of us going, um, well, I'm a a follower of Jesus, and I'm not Hindu, I'm not a Jainist, I'm not a Muslim, I'm I'm not Jewish, I'm a Christian. But all it is is a title. It's not necessarily something that, who you are. Just as we said last week, there's a difference between profession and possession. And it's interesting enough that when I was in India, and I, I remember coming across the quote as I was preparing my messages for India, and I think I've shared it here before, um, Gandhi, the great Indian, the great statesman, um, did so many great things in India, was once asked the question, you are, he, they said to him, um, Gandhi, you are such a, a, a huge fan of the teachings of Jesus. And, and because of that, why don't you become a Christian? And do you know what his response was? He is purported to have said this, when I meet a Christian who is a follower of Jesus, I might try it. See, what that, what that meant was, and, and it's right, it's something that causes us, should cause us to back away and go, what? What he was saying is, is that when I meet a, a, a true follower, not a person who just says it in name, but a, tr- a person who seeks to follow and obey the word of God, I might consider it. See, what he was showing there is that when I meet someone who is a real disciple, that is not a hypocrite, then I might consider it. And we all know of people that have been, um, how, how, what hypocrites have done to the name of Christ. And many of us, we've been there ourselves, if we were very honest. We've failed. We've fallen. But we, we have to get back up and continue to follow, which means growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I, I think many of us still don't have a very good understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we think follower of Jesus, we're okay with just following Jesus a little bit in our life, not having our life committed to him. This became a, a very huge uh, question for me when I was in my very last day when I was in India. I had the opportunity of visiting a slum. And there's many different slums in, in India. They're all over. Um, Delhi, for example, has uh, over a thousand slums. It's a city of 22 million people. And I was in the city of Nagpur, which is smack dab in the center of India, and we got to go into one of these, these slums. And, and I don't think we have a clue of what it's like there. I mean, you're talking about people that were, were bathing in the very same water area and going to the, same, in the, to the bathroom in an area where the water buffaloes are. I mean, they, they didn't have running water until one uh, Indian missionary decided to go in there, and he started working among the slums, and he ended up putting in two bore wells so they could have fresh water, and, and he had planted a church there, and this guy also has an alcohol and drug rehabilitation ministry. Just an amazing guy. His name is Trilokan. And I was talking with Trilokan and as we were walking through the slum, and we gathered uh, quite a bit of attention walking through this slum. 
Uh, you don't have a lot of white Westerners walking through here very often. So we had a, a crowd gather around us as we're, we're walking, and he's showing us where they meet and where the services are. And he's even got them sewing machines that our great-grandparents would have had, the, the kinds you would move with the foot so these women could help make things and, and get out of their poverty. I mean, it's amazing ministry that he's doing. And he said, I said, how many people are in this church that you have? And he said, there's about 25 individuals in this church. And I was like, that's fantastic. And, and as we're walking through, one of the men that was in the church walked up to us, and he bowed to us. He didn't speak any English, but he was so excited to see Trilokan. And then he, and Trilokan was introducing him to us, and he was so honored that we would come into this area with him. And then he asked uh, that we would come into his home, which was basically just four uh, poles with um, aluminum sheets, and enough for his family, him, his wife, and his two children, and they lived in this just little hovel. And he was so excited that we were in there, and, he, and uh, Triloka said, yes, he comes to the church. And, and, and the guy was so excited we'd be in his house, he goes, well, I want you to come to the Hindu temple with me. And I looked at Triloka, and I said, I thought you said that he was coming to church. He's like, he's coming to church, but he's not a Christian yet. So he said, so let's go. So we went to the Hindu temple, and this guy was so excited, he, uh, he got into the car with us, and we drove to the temple. He jumps out of the, the temple, and an extra group of men jump right out, and there's little temples on the side of the road. And there's this picture of this very, uh, I can't remember the name of the goddess that it was, but uh, there's flowers all around it, there's offerings, and then he, he wants us to take a picture of him and his friends in front of this Hindu temple. And I'm, I'm kind of disgusted to see this idol. And, and what he does is we take the picture, and then he lays prostrate on it. Now, and, 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 and he wanted us to take a picture of that to show his devotion to the goddess, but to also say that he believed in Jesus. Now, see, there's, this is what we call syncretism, where you take one faith and you combine it with another, and, and in his mind, it was okay. In Hinduism, there's 330 million gods, and they're fine with adding Jesus to be one of them. But they have a big problem with the exclusivity of Jesus alone and not understanding that because in their, their mindset, they all fit together. But I, I saw him bow down to it, and, and I saw a reality for each one of us. Though we don't bow down to idols that are physical, we bow down to idols that are spiritual and material. And the reality is, is we are a lot like him. We combine Christianity with whatever pleasure we want and that we think we're okay. See, God is calling us to be pure-hearted followers of Christ, to forsake idolatry, pursue him, to grow as disciples, and then he's entrusted us with the task, without exception, to make disciples. We are disciples who are to make disciples, without exception. This is not just for the super spiritual. We think, oh, that's for the trained pastor, or that's for the, the elder, or the Sunday school teacher. No, it's for every single one of us. Did you know in the physical world, a sign of maturity is reproduction? The same is true in the spiritual world, that we are to reproduce ourselves. So if we're to be following Jesus, we need to be growing and helping other people learn how to follow Jesus. And what I want to do today is I want us to, to, I, I want to rethink what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how to disciple other people to follow Jesus. Because I think many of us have wrong understandings of what it means to disciple and share our faith. We think programs, we think door-to-door, we think extroverts, and many of us aren't like that. And so we feel guilty all the time. But my hope is today is that we can look into the Word of God and see in this passage today how we are to be disciples 
who make disciples for the glory of God. And that we should all go away challenged to think about how we can share our faith and help other people follow Jesus the way that God has commanded us and desired us, desires us to do. Amen? Amen. So let's jump in with the word of God together. But before we go in our message time, I just want to pray for God's blessing on our, on our message time together. Father, we do come into your presence. We are grateful for your mercies. We are grateful for your grace. And we want to be disciples who make disciples. But so often we are fearful, we're afraid, we're confused, we don't understand. And Lord, we have many different things that come up in our minds, many wrong thoughts about what it means to disciple others. Lord, we pray today that you remove that, enable us to see who you are, and help us to glorify your name uh, so that we might increase in joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump right into our text. Let's look at verse 1. Uh, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is writing to the young Timothy. He was pastoring a church at Ephesus. And as he's writing to Timothy, he's trying to encourage him because he was a young leader. He had a tendency to be discouraged. I mean, this is the very beginning of the church. There wasn't a lot of manuals. There wasn't moody publishers. There wasn't the internet. He's, he's, trying to, he's flying blind. So whatever things that Paul can teach him, Um, and help him in this ministry he can use. So Paul says to him, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the way that it is in the language is you need to find strength. You've got to strengthen yourself in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He tells him to find his strength in grace. Why? Why does he start off that way? I think it's because Timothy was discouraged that he was going through a hard time, that he was trying to make disciples, he was confused at the process, he didn't know exactly what to do, and he's, he's just feeling like he's worthless, and he can't do it. And Paul's saying to him, no, you've got to find strength in grace. You need to be, be empowered by grace. If you're to make disciples who make disciples, that requires us all to be empowered by grace, meaning that you have to stop and realize that it's not about you. You're not the one who saves people. God is. God is the one who saves us. That we are not our own. That we've been bought with a price. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. That we need to be constantly reminded and be, um, to be strengthened by grace. Because you know why? When we fail, we just feel like we just, oh, I blew it. And I give up. I mean, have you ever felt that way? I know I have where you're, you're charging along, you're feeling good, and then you mess up. You sin, you, you screw it up, it doesn't matter what it is, and then you just feel like, why do it? Why bother? And we give in and give up. And he's saying, no, 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 you have to, you have to find strength and grace. Even in the midst of this, then you have to find strength and grace. It, it reminds me of an, um, an episode that I had recently with one of my children who will remain nameless. Well, one of them was using the microwave. Now, how many of you have had, you parents have had your child use the microwave and put something in for way too long? And you realize this when you're alerted by the smoke alarm goes off. So I, I'm, I'm studying, I'm working in the basement, um, I have a little office down there, and, and I hear the beep, 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 and I run upstairs and there's smoke filling the kitchen. And I'm like, whoa, no, what happened? First, my first thought is, is where's Elijah? Because <laughs> I figured he might do that, but it wasn't him. Um, and uh, I, I look up and I see the microwave. There's smoke pouring out of the microwave. And I open it up and there's, I can't remember what it was, but there's smoke flying around. I ended up verbally castigating this child who had done it. Like, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? But as that's going on, I'm running to do, what's the next thing you do as a parent? 
You got the, the alarm's going off. What do you do? You got to air out the house, right? So I'm opening the doors. I'm opening the windows. Smoke is, is just hanging as a haze in my house. And I take, I run, I run and grab a fan and I put it in the window in the kitchen and so that it'll take the smoke and blow it out, right? You know, I think of that as a picture of what happens when we sin against God. That the smoke is there. God says, I'm going to take the cross and I'm going to, you, this is, it's like a gift of grace and I'm going to blow this away so it can clear the air so that you can think. Because see, grace clears the air. It helps us to realize that though we are just sitting there and we're in the middle of the smoke and the disaster that we created, God acts and, and takes it and gives us grace and says, I'm going to remove this from you. I'm going to give you what, I'm going to withhold what you deserve. I'm going to give you what you didn't deserve so that you can find strength and clarity. So we have to realize that it's not about us. It's about God and his grace to us. We need to be empowered by grace. And this grace helps us then to refocus and get back to the task at hand. Look at verse 2. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Don't be discouraged, Timothy. Be empowered by grace, and then I want you to entrust the faith to others. If you're going to be a disciple who makes disciples, you have to be empowered by grace yourself and remember that there's going to be failure. There's going to be, there's going to be uh, people that disappoint you, that you're going to struggle. You're going to have a hard time going against the wind. But you need to entrust. You need to find faithful people and entrust the faith to them. You can't do it to everybody. You can't make a disciple of everyone. Jesus himself had how many? Twelve. And, had, and from the twelve, he had another closer group. How many were in that? Three, Peter, James, and John. And from that, he spent a lot of time with, with uh, um, John and, he, and even Peter. He's spending, he, he knew that he couldn't be with everyone equally. So if we're to make disciples who make disciples, we need to entrust the faith to others, and we need to find our 12 and our three and our one. Because God's not calling us to teach everybody. Because it's impossible to do. But we have to find people that are faithful and trust the faith to others. Now, what does it mean to entrust the faith to others? I mean, what does it mean to evangelize? Again, we have ideas of evangelism, of knocking on doors or passing out tracts on the, on the street corner, and, and those have merit. But I think many of us aren't like that. We're, we're not people that like to be out like that. Um, I don't know if you're like me. I'm not a real confrontational person. Um, I'm actually, and I know you're going to disbelieve this, I'm kind of an introvert. Um, and uh, I, I'm not a person that enjoys being way out there all the time and those type of things and having conflict. And I'm not great at arguing with people. I, I'm more of a, let me go about my business. Let's walk together and do life together. And some people like that, confrontational. I have a friend of mine. He loves passing out tracts. He loves getting into arguments and discussing the truth of Christ with people. And there's a place for that. But for many of us, I think what we, we, we want to share Jesus. But because we're not like that, we think that's what evangelism is. And because we're not that way, we struggle. But that's not God's calling us to. He's saying that I want you to entrust the faith. I want you to go and make disciples. He doesn't say necessarily how to go about it, does he? He says, go and make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? I mean, I think many of us have this image in our mind. We think of, of evangelism as a, as a salesman. And that they have to get you to, they have to close the deal with you in that moment. And when we share the gospel, we feel like we've got to close the deal. 
I got to get you to pray this prayer. I got to get you to do this. I got to get you to, to, to sign off and get everything. And even evangelists, we hear the term evangelist so often, we think of this person coming in to close the deal for the, for the gospel for people. And I'm not saying that there aren't individuals that are gifted to, to share the truth of the gospel and bring it home, but we, we have this idea in our mind of almost a salesman. What we need to do is think about it more as a journey and as a travel guide. Someone that is along with us to help walk with us, to talk with us, to walk through life with us, continually pointing to Christ, telling them about Christ. And it takes a lifetime. It's not about walking through the Romans road in that moment. Now, it might be, it could be, that could happen. But for many of us, we, we, we think it's a product and, not, and forget that it's also a process. Where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. That it's a process of growing and walking with people and telling them about Christ as you walk through life. It's a travel guide, not a salesman. And so we need to make sure that we're helping people in their journey and walking them close to Jesus. Now, we're telling them about Jesus, and eventually, for many of them, it could be the, the crisis moment where they surrender and they receive Christ in that moment in time, or it, or it could be that theirs is more of the dimmer switch we've talked about so often in our services, where they, they know they've trusted in Christ, but it's been over time, and they can't remember. It's like when you're, you're looking at the sunrise, and you're, you're talking to someone, and it's dark, and the next thing you know, it's light around. Because the, 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 the sunrise just came upon you. And it's, for some people, that's how they come, become converted. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it. He said, I was in the sidecar of my brother's motorcycle, and we were going to the zoo. And I didn't believe in Jesus when I got into the sidecar, but when we got to the zoo, I believed in Jesus. He said it was not the most dramatic conversion in the world. But it was a, it was a process. And he had to have almost two conversions. First, it was a conversion to theism. And then he had the conversion to Christ later on, and that's when he was in the sidecar. So many of us, we have to remember that it is a process, and that we're to be walking with people on this journey, talking with them about who Jesus is, bringing home the message of the gospel. It means entrusting the faith then to other people. Now here, this is more in the, in, in the understanding of in a church setting where Timothy's the leader, he's to disciple people who will go and make disciples, and he's looking for um, individuals who are on fire for God. He's looking for people that are committed. Committed. If we're to entrust um, the gospel to other people, we have to find people that will be committed to it, that are interested in it, that have a desire to grow. And, and we, though we share with everyone, there are those that we can tell that God is working on, and they're committed to understanding. And those are the people we want to make sure that we really truly invest our, a great deal of our time or more of our time in. You know, there's a story of a chicken and a pig who are walking down the street one day. They came to the grocery store, and the grocer had a sign out front or in the window that said, Bacon and eggs wanted. The grocer said, Can you help me out? I need some bacon and eggs. The chicken said, Well, let's go and help him out. He needs some bacon, pig. You can give him some bacon, and I can give him, give him the eggs. The pig said, You're crazy. All you have to do is a contribution. I have to give up the whole thing. See, in some ways, we, we, we fail to think. I mean, we think that we just give a contribution to God and we can give a little bit to God. But see, God's wanting all of us, all of us to follow him, to be disciples who make disciples. We need to be committed. And these individuals, as Paul says, in what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. These are committed men that are there, faithful men that are, that are there and ready to hear and ready to listen and ready to grow. 
And he says, you need to find people who are committed, but you also need to find people of character. Character. These are faithful men. These are men that can be trusted. You know, the worst thing to me is hearing about some, uh, when I hear from an unbeliever how a, a person who had gone to a church was a believer who had totally lacked any integrity whatsoever. And I don't think that person realizes what they're doing to the name of Christ and how hard they're making ministry for the rest of us. We need people of character. I love how Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says, the world needs men who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who puts character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report, in adversity as well as in prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-heartedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, who can say no with emphasis, although all of the rest of the world says yes. How hard is it to find people of character today? I mean, think about your workplace. How many people really truly have character? People that you work with. I mean, I know that there's probably a person, a boss that you're dealing with or someone that's in the next cubicle over or that you feel is going to stab you in the back. My question is, is how do you respond to that? Do you fight fire with fire? Or do you truly be a person of character and follow God and let God dictate to you rather than your circumstances and their reactions? So we're looking, God's looking for people and wants us to be looking for people who are committed, who are a character, and then who have competency. Notice, these are faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They have the ability to teach and share. You know, as a, as a, uh, as a team, um, in our, our leadership team, there's four things that we look for whenever we're recruiting a potential leader. We call the four C's. And if any of the four C's aren't present, then they can't be a part of our team. We look for character, who they are. We look for competency, can they do the job? But we also look for chemistry because they have to fit along with the rest of the team. And then we need courage, someone who can be able to stand for what is right and against for what is wrong, no matter what anyone else says. But we, we do make sure that each one of those is there. And here, he's showing competency. Do they have the ability to do it? And you need to find those people and entrust the gospel to them. Now, as we go about this process, we will discover that it's hard. You know, sometimes we always look for the miraculous and the deliverance, but we forget that God calls us to daily die. It's in the, the mist of life where disciples are truly made and where character is developed. It's in the daily grind. It's in the time of when you're going to work, or getting up in the morning, when you're dealing with your spouse, when you're raising your children, when you're paying your taxes, when you're handling your money, and you're discussing with friends, when you're watching sports or um, musicals or whatever you're into. See, being a disciple is not just for Sunday morning only. It's all the time. And we need to make sure that we continue to go about it. And the hard part is, there's going to be suffering. It's going to be hard. It's easy at times to, to, to want the miraculous and want the deliverance. It's hard to do it every day. Or as D.L. Moody said, out of all the people that I've ever encountered, the person I've struggled with most is myself. It's very true. I mean, think about it. 
Who is the person you struggle with most in life? I bet you see them every day when you look in the mirror. I mean, we do. We struggle with ourselves. And God is calling us to die daily. And then he's also calling us to endure suffering. That's why he says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting. The word share and the word suffering are actually uh, one word in Greek. And it's an aorist active imperative, which means it's to, to suffer with someone. It's an active sense, but it's, it's undefined. But it's a command to do so, to come alongside, to be with other people, to suffer with them as they're going through hardship, as they're struggling, as they're learning to die daily, as they're trying to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, as they go through life, that we're to be being with other people to endure suffering and hardship together. And then he gives an example. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier. We just talked about soldiers. Soldiers are people that are committed, that their, their focus, especially after they go through basic training, is whatever the, the, the officer says. I'm to do and follow what my commanding officer says to do. I'm not concerned about everything else going on. I'm riveted. I'm focused. Have a laser-like focus on them. I am sold out. See, what he's saying there, and some people think that this is, is referring to not talking about the world, the civilian pursuits. It's not what it's talking about. He's talking about being focused on what he has to say. Not that we don't care about anything else, but our main goal is to please our commanding officer. So our main goal should be to please God, which means that we need to be sold out for Christ. That's the next point. If we're to be enduring suffering, going through this hardship, then we need to be sold out. We have to be, to, I mean, completely riveted for Jesus. How many of us are truly sold out for Christ? I'm not just talking about attending services. I'm talking about it is the heartbeat of your life. It defines everything about you. Is that, are you sold out for Jesus? That's what he's saying here. That if you're to endure suffering and you're going, to be, you're going to be suffering with other people because you are sold out, but you need to be sold out for Christ. Now notice the second metaphor that Paul refers to in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned until he competes according to the rules. Now, he's referring to the Olympiad and the Ismithian games that were going on, where there were many different athletic contests. And he's saying that you have to follow the rules. You can't go off. You can't do whatever you want to do. You've got to follow the rules. As we see within Scripture, God is giving us a way to go in, which means that we need to be a people of integrity, and we need to make sure that we are staying the course, that we are holding on and doing what God wants us to do no matter what. Now, we have a tendency, though, to want to cheat. I mean, if anybody here, when you play family board games, who cheats? <laughs> wow, you raised your hand. That's the most honesty I've ever heard in a service today. In athletics, though, what happens when people cheat? I mean, they're disqualified. But think about what all the things that happened to him. I mean, I'm going to throw out a name. For Some of you who are younger may not remember this name, but how many of you remember Ben Johnson? Do you remember Ben Johnson? 1988 Olympics. This was the, the Canadian sprinter in the 100 meters. He'd been going back and forth with Carl Lewis. He beat him a few times, but Lewis would continually beat him time and time again. Came time for the Olympics, and you watch the race, and he annihilates Carl Lewis and runs at 9.79. So it's a world record in the process. But three days later, it came out that he was doping. And he was disqualified. He was disgraced. Matter of fact, as time went on, he found out that he'd been doping for like six or seven years. And it became a scandal. He was, he was uh, 
uh, became a laughing stock. He became, everybody had turned against him. Um, it, no one would even race with him. Even after he, he tried to get clean, he tried to run on a race, but no one would run with him. He ended up running by himself. He was totally cut off from everyone else because he refused to stay the course. He wanted to take shortcuts and not play according to the rules. And think about other names, Marion Jones, uh, Tim Montgomery. You've got Barry Bonds. You've got many different athletes or even Lance Armstrong. Individuals that we heralded at one point in time, but because they refused to stay the course, play according to the rules, they were disqualified, and their names became bywords. So what are we to do? That we are to focus and stay the course, to be men and women of integrity, and let God sort out the rest. Don't take shortcuts. Focus on God. Do what he wants you to do, and stay stay the course. But that's not all. Look at verse 6. He, brings, he talks to the athlete. He refers to now the farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, farming is tough. I don't know how many of you have grown up on farms. I grew up on a farm, um, and I got to see all the time how hard they worked. My grandfather was the hardest working man that I've ever known in my life. He was also one of the strongest men I've ever known. Um, and seeing how much time he put in and how dedicated he was and how much he had to depend on, on God and the weather and, and, and see what, how God would, when he would make it rain or make sure the crops got in. And, and when the time came to, to bring in the crops, I mean, he, he wouldn't even sleep. Sometimes for days he was trying to bring in the crops. And here he's saying that it's the hardworking farmer is the one who should receive his first share of the crops. And it reminds me of so many different verses, such as Psalm 126, 6, where it says, and you don't have to turn there, you can if you want to, it's on page 518. Um, but he says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See, he's saying that even though the farming is hard because you're waiting on the ground to bring up that fruit, to bring forth those crops, and there's times where you wonder, is it ever going to grow? Is it ever going, am I ever going to see fruit? Am I ever going to see results? And what God is saying to us is that, hey, hold on. See through your conditions, you're going to be able to reap. You, may not, you might think everybody else around you is reaping or, or growing, but God is going to have you reap and you grow. And we need to make sure that we see through our current conditions. That's the next point in your notes, to see through our current conditions. And there's other verses such as Galatians 6, 9 that, that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We have to understand that though we are struggling and going through a hard time, that people seem to be turning away from God, that God's still going to accomplish his purposes. I mean, I don't know about you, but what I see going on in the culture depresses me. It makes me scared for my children. It makes me stop and wonder what's going to happen. And then I have to remember that God is going to be victorious that God is going to accomplish his purposes and that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And I think it's easy. I think Paul was saying, don't be discouraged. You're going to have a fruit of your labor. Don't, don't give in. Don't give up. And if anybody knew discouragement, it was Paul. I mean, sometimes we think of these guys as being so spiritual that they're no earthly good. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's on page 969. 
969 in your pew Bible if you have one. And I want us to see this guy. This man who is, is, is known to help change the world as he served Christ and was working out his salvation with fear and trembling. This man who, who God, whom God had touched to write so many of these or pen so many of these New Testament letters, he talks about what he went through. I mean, this guy gave up his career. He gave up his family. He became a laughingstock. And people, I mean, he had been this, this uh, up-and-comer uh, to look at, and then he ends up leaving or stepping out of Judaism and to basically, I mean, which was still considered part of Judaism at the time, Christianity, but he's um, showing how Christ fulfilled it, and people felt he was a traitor. And he talks about what he went through. And if you look at this in verse uh, 21 in Second Corinthians chapter 11, he says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool here, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes by this one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to, to fall and I'm not indignant? I mean, look at the, the struggle that he was going through. I mean, even go back and look at verse 28 when he says, And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now we forget the church was in its infant stage and the church was messed up. I mean, think about all the stuff that he's getting reports of. By the way, uh, Paul, we have a report what's going on in Corinth. Um, there's been some people getting drunk at communion. There's been some divisions. Some say they're following you. Some say they're following Cephas. Some say you're following Apollos. Um, also, there's some sexual morality going on, a kind that not even goes among the pagans. Um, yeah, this church is really messed up. And they're, by the way, they're abusing the spiritual gifts. It's all kind of crazy. What do you want to do? And I'm sure he's like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with these people? I mean, he's saying, how oh, these guys are messed up. And he's saying, but he's also saying that God's still going to accomplish his purpose even through sinful people. He's going to bring his purpose to pass. I mean, he knew how messed up the churches were. I mean, Corinth was known for conflict, divisions. They even questioned Paul's qualifications for ministry, sexual immorality. They were also suing one another in court. They were guilty of idolatry, the abuse of spiritual gifts. They harbored bitterness and unforgiveness. They also were listening to false apostles. I mean, and the list goes on. The church at Galatia was having members turn away to false gospels. And they, they believed also that works saved them rather than faith. And then there are the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I mean, churches like that turned from their first love. They supported pagan beliefs. They tolerated sexual immorality. They lacked doing good works. They failed to be useful. And then he had conflicts, even with his mentor Barnabas, so bad that it had to separate. Now, when you look at something that messed up, does that not give you hope for today? Because we think, oh, the church is so bad. 
It hasn't changed a whole lot. But yet, God is calling us out of that, and he calls them out of it, and he uses Paul and he, and to rebuke them, to call them out of their sin, into light, to the purity of the gospel. And he's saying that God will accomplish his purpose. God's name will be praised. He will be victorious. That this church, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. That he will accomplish his purpose no matter how much everything is messed up around us. Now Paul goes on. He ends his thought with, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what is he saying there? He wanted us to consider, to think about, to ruminate on what he just wrote. And what is that? That he was, it's about discipleship. He's saying that I want you to entrust with other people's, people what God has done in your life. He wants us to all to engage in the process of discipleship. That's what he's saying. Think about it. I want you to do this. I want you to, to find strength and grace in what God is doing in your life. I want to share with you uh, an excerpt from a book by a man named Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of The Navigators that I found especially challenging. He, he wrote a book called Born to Reproduce, and in it he said this, and the quote's not on the screen, but just listen in. He says, you can lead a soul to Christ in 20 minutes to a couple of hours, but it takes from 20 weeks to a couple of years to get him on the roads to maturity. Victorious over the sins and the recurring problems that come along, he must learn how to make right decisions. He must be warned of the various isms that are likely to reach out with their octopus arms and pull him in and sidetrack him. But when you get yourself a man, you have doubled your ministry. In fact, you have more than doubled your ministry. Do you know why? When you teach your man, he sees how it is done and he imitates you. If I were the minister of a church and had deacons or elders to pass the plate and choir members to sing, I would say, thank God for your help. We need you. Praise the Lord for these extra things that you do. But I would keep pressing home the big job. Be fruitful and multiply. All these other things are incidental to the supreme task of winning a man or woman to Jesus Christ and then helping him or her go on. Where is your man? Where is your woman? Do you have one that you have won? You can ask God for one. Search your hearts. Ask the Lord, am I spiritually sterile? If I am, why am I? What do we need to do? Why are we not making disciples? Or are we? Are you making disciples? Yes, children count. But are you making disciples? Are you inviting people on the journey together with you to discover who Christ is and then follow him? What do we need to do to engage in this process of discipleship? I mean, we're commanded to go, but God wants our heart. And for us to engage in this process requires the heart to do it. You have to have the heart to do it. The heart to go do it. I'm not sure why people think that making disciples is only for super Christians. But it's for everyone without exception. See, I think the reason that many of us have lost our desire to share our faith is that we've lost our concern for those who are lost. Most people are not concerned that they are lost. They, they like the, they're like the little boy at Disneyland who is enjoying Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. He was enjoying the Ferris wheel and the roller coasters. He was having a marvelous time, and in the midst of the crowd, he got separated from his parents. When he got separated from his parents, he didn't know that he was lost because he was having so much fun on the rides. Satan has so constructed this world to give you enough distractions so that you don't know that the fun in this world and all this world is offering them, the movies, parties, clubs, the social relationships, the money and the job, is all a satanic camouflage to keep you from realizing that they have been separated from God. 
See, mankind spends his so much time having fun that they don't know that they're lost. However, the parents of this particular child were looking for him. They knew he was lost at Disneyland. They went to an officer and told security that they couldn't find their child. The security man led the parents to the lost child who didn't even know he was lost. See, God wants to find lost people. We are the security guards to bring lost people into contact with the God who wants to regain fellowship with them. That's our task in sharing our faith. We're the ones that God has chosen to deliver this message. Whereas John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put it, he said, I was more convinced than ever that the, pre- that the preaching like an apostle, without joining together those that are awakened and training them up in the ways of God, is only beginning children for the murderer. The consequence of our years of evangelism here is that nine and ten of the ones awakened are now faster asleep than ever. See, evangelism and discipleship means opening up ourselves to God, to others, so that we can share our life with them. Now, we have many excuses of why. And I want you to think, why aren't you doing this? What's your excuse? What is it? I'd love to hear it. What's keeping you from sharing your faith and discipling someone else? Too busy? Not enough time? Not enough training? Don't know the Bible very well? What is your excuse? We don't have to be perfect biblical scholars. We have to know, I was once blind, but now I see. We have to remember that. See, we need a heart to go do it. But it also means coming alongside one another, someone else, and opening up your life to theirs. And that's where it gets scary. Because it might mean that you're holding on to secret sins. You don't want people to know who you really are. See, it also means having the humility to show it. The heart to go do it, but the humility to show it means opening up your life. Let them see who you are and what it means to be a follower of you. I remember as a young man, I was hanging out with uh, Joel. Joel and I go back a long way. And I I remember hanging out with his dad. I don't know if you've ever met Bill Bedall, but he's an experience. Um, He's this, he's a, it's hard to describe him, but I call him Alibaba. Um, And I I love his dad, but I remember I I was a very new believer. I'd grown up in church, but I never had anyone disciple me. And I was thinking a program. And I remember hearing his dad say about someone, just his offhand comment, he said, that guy doesn't know beans about discipleship. And it bothered me because I didn't know what he meant. And then as I got to know him, I got to know his family. I saw what discipleship was. It was bringing his sons on catering jobs. It was sharing his faith, always talking about Jesus no matter where he was. And I see that evidence within his sons, that he's always sharing Jesus, talking about Jesus as they were doing a catering job, they're, wherever they are, they're talking about Jesus. That's discipleship. It's coming along, showing someone another of who Jesus is, and it's talking about life. It means talking about, and here's what it looks like. It means talking about your children. It means talking about parenting. It means talking about your failures. It means talking about sports, but it, it's talking about everything because it's wherever we can find a way to give God glory in our hobbies. It's, it's showing people that I'm showing God's first even before my hobbies. And that comes out in conversation. It's opening on ourselves. It's the humility to show it. So it's the heart to go do it, and it's the humility to show it. It also means you need to have a head to know it. Heart to go do it, humility to show it, the head to know it means you've got to grow. And you know what? The best way to grow is when you're discipling somebody else. 
It's amazing how much we want to learn when we have to teach somebody else. So we have to have a head to know it, to open ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to be biblical scholars, but we need to grow and know it is what we believe and why. And lastly, you're going to need a hunger to grow it. A hunger to grow it. Are you hungry? Do you have a hunger to grow in your relationship with God? If not, why not? If so, take up the challenge. I'm challenging us all to define one person. Find that one person and start to disciple them. You don't have to walk around and say, you're my disciple. I'm not saying that. I'm saying is, hey, how are you doing? How about we get together for coffee? I just want to get to know you, grow with you, and maybe challenge me, pray for you, pray for me. Don't, don't, don't stop. I mean, pray for one another for crying out loud. I can't believe I have to say this. Pray for each other. Do you pray for somebody else? I mean, even after the service, they're struggling. Pull, I've seen some of our, our, our people here. God bless you for doing this. Pull them alongside, and I see you praying for somebody. somebody. God bless you. We need to do more of that. Praying in, with one another, encouraging one another. We need to have a hunger to grow. Unfortunately, many of us have these muscles, these spiritual things we've been hearing and growing fat off biblical teaching, and we're not burning anything. We're not doing anything with it. It reminds me of the story of this bodybuilder who was visiting an African tribe. And the tribal chief was just amazed at his physique. This guy was huge. So the tribal chief asked the muscle builder, what do you do with all of those muscles? The bodybuilder said, well, it's probably easier to show you than to explain. So he went into all these different presentations, posing, showing each of the muscles, making them ripple, doing all of that stuff. And he's showing his triceps, his back, his obliques. He just stood there changing poses. And after the presentation, the tribal chief said, wow, that is impressive. But I have a second question. What else do you do with all those muscles? And Well, the bodybuilder said that that's pretty much it. I, I, I work out to pose. The African chief shook his head and said, what a waste. What a waste. What a waste. You did all that just to pose? See, many Christians work out only to pose. So many of us do. We get spiritually fat. We come to the service. We feel like we're doing well. Hear great Bible teaching. Talk about Bible teachers. Listen on Moody Radio. But we don't do anything. God didn't give you those muscles to pose. God wants you to work out your faith with fear and trembling and step out and burn what you learn. Burn what you learn for the glory of God. We have to grow. God has called us to grow. That is a mark of discipleship. It means following Jesus, pressing hard after Jesus, inviting other people to follow along after Jesus, helping them grow in their relationship with Jesus. He might be slow, but we are to grow. And we're to be true followers of Christ. And that means growing in grace ourselves, entrusting the faith to other people, enduring suffering, and then engaging in this process of discipleship with others. We can't be posers or pretenders. But healthy disciples who make disciples. Let's take up that challenge together, shall we not? Pray for that person that God would invite them and bring them into your life. But you need to make sure yourself you're committed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are and what it is you have done. I thank you that you are working in our church. 
I am so grateful at that, and you work through the preaching and proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray for this body of believers right now. I pray your spirit might be upon them. I pray that you might convict all of us to make disciples who make disciples, that we might replicate ourselves, that your name might receive great glory, and that we might increase in joy, not just in this church building, but in our workplaces, in our schools, um, the places we, we, most, uh, we most frequent, and even uh, across our city and across the United States and the world. Lord, glorify your name and help us to make disciples who make disciples, that your name might receive glory and we might grow in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.